Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanwell Major. In this episode, we're going to continue with our ABC of sailing. We're on G and G is for jiving. Now, I understand that immediately that creates a problem for North American sailors for whom jiving is spelt J-I-B-E. But in, uh, in England and in the Australasian places where I've worked, it's G-Y-B-E. And uh, look, it means that we can get it out of the way earlier in the alphabet. So let's go for that. And it leaves J open for something else. Um, I think, uh, you know, I've tried to record this a couple of times already, as I often do with these, and just kind of don't get the flow of it. I think if we do jibing, can we do jibing and tacking? Like, is that is that cheeky to have G's for jibing and tacking? Obviously, we normally sort of say it the other way around, but uh, let's get them both out of the way. I found that trying to talk only about jibing and then not being able to kind of include tacking just kind of made the conversation really really complex so let's go with chi is for jibing and tacking <laughs> and don't worry about the spelling or the fact that it's actually two things but what can we say about that well look i think the best best thing here is for me to explain like where i'm coming from when i think about jibing now as you know i sail these bigger kind of boats and uh, oftentimes i do that uh with shorthanded or solo so jiving a 60-foot boat on your own or with a couple of people, um, there's very large forces at play and it's really, really important to make sure that you have a very clear plan of what your actions are going to be um, during the period of the jive, particularly if it's blowing 25, 30 knots and uh, you're already doing 15 or 16 knots and you've got uh, literally hundreds of square meters of uh, canvas up. Um, you need to have a real plan. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk for the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes. I'm just going to talk to you like um, you know a lot about these big boats. Okay, so we can go through all the different bits and bobs. I'm not going to explain too much of it. I just want you to kind of let it wash over you for a little while. I'm discussing all the things that I have to do to jibe the boat just once. 60 foot boat, solo, out in the middle of the Southern Ocean. All the stuff I'm going to describe here, it's all what has to happen in one jibe. So when I say I want to explain where I come from with jibing, this is where I come from. And then obviously doing on any other kind of boat, relax a little bit about some aspect, but that's how your brain's firing. All this stuff is still going through my brain, even when I'm on like a J112 and we're just jibing, going downwind on a race. So I actually dug out my old logbook and in here I have got a very initial set of notes that I made in this book when I was learning how to sail the Open 60. Um, I, th I think in the end they might have ended up like laminated on the exterior of the cabin in the cockpit in the cockpit where I could see them properly. But um, I know that this is where I kind of started off from. So it probably evolved a bit over time. I can't quite remember now. It was a long time ago. But um, it's interesting to see all the steps you have to go through to be able to drive a, a high power boat. And yet all the steps also exist for a, uh, a lower powered boat. It's just they're not quite as important because you could just jibe over and go, oh, this doesn't look right, and then just jibe back. But if it takes you 45 minutes to jibe the boat, um, you get very kind of, um, well, lazy, I guess is one word, or very tactical would be a much more kind of kindly word about when to jibe, when not to jibe. So it starts off with check sail chart. So for me, that means have I got the right sail up? Have I got the apps, you know, whatever direction I'm trying to go. If I've been on one blast reaching course and then I'm going to go over to another blast reaching course, well, of course, I'm going to have, you know, the sail up that's correct for that. But if I'm trying to get as far downwind as possible and it's not kind of working as much as I'd like it to, have I got the kite that will take me um, to the lowest position on my on my polars? That's my first, um, first kind of uh, thing to check. And then with that is the next part, check VMG. So again, more thinking about when you're, going downwind and then you're looking to jibe a course downwind i'm checking have i got the best velocity made good 
to lured? Am I getting the most from this sale? Have I got the right sale? Am I getting the most from it? Do I really need to jibe right now or do I need a headsaw? Uh, sorry, yeah, well, yeah, a headsaw change, a kite change. So <clears throat> those first two things, um, those might be something you just, you know, okay, yeah, absolutely, the wind's changed. We want to need to be on a different sail now and it is trimmed and we're going at the right speed, in which case the next thing that comes along is boards and that's dagger boards. These big boats have dagger boards, which one goes in on one side or the other goes on the other side, depending on what you're doing. Um, and uh, on downwind courses, on blast reaching course, you often have like three quarters of a board down. Um, I found it stopped the boat from slewing around quite so much when you're going at sort of 15, 16 knots and you're coming off waves. You've got very little of the boat in the water. Um, only about 60 centimeters, like two feet of the boat uh, hull is in the water. The rest of it's just the keel and the rudders. So if you've just got the, the rudder, uh, which is like, I don't know, 60 centimeters probably again from front to back and no more than a meter no, a bit more i guess meter and a half deep something like that the keel's a lot deeper but it's also very thin from front to back there's not much grip from the underside of the boat in the ocean and if the boat kind of gets a bit screwily off a wave um it can kind of slew around and end up on its side dragging um with the autopilots obviously unable to overcome the pressure of the mainsail so um i'm looking at first these these dagger boards and do they does it need to be switched from one side to the other if you're going from one blast reaching course to another, then yes, it does. If you're on downwind courses, then you probably don't have much to do. But they do take a long time to uh, maneuver up and down. So the boards are something which come very early in the list, the things that I have to do. What will happen with this is that there's an uphaul kind of take system, which is made of like 8 mil Dyneema, something like that. It's on a winch, but you can't just grind the board up. There's so much sideways force on the board from what you're doing, so much hydrodynamic force on the board that you can't just grind it up whenever you want it up. If you're going over 15, 16 knots, then it's going to take it quite a while to come up, and that's going to be you're going to tension it on the winch and then wait, and then she goes over a few bounces and bumps, and there's a few bits of cavitation underwater. The pressure's momentarily released, and the tension that you've put into the uphaul will lift the board up by an inch or so. And you just every time you go past the winch and everything that you know comes thereafter in the list, you just keep putting a bit of tension on it. It'll get to a point where it's only got like one third of the board in the water and then you can just grind it up. Um, I remember being alongside in Hugo Boss and we were doing something and uh, I just let go the clutch for the uh, for the dagger board and it came down with a bang and like broke the securing strap which was the the how far down the board can go is limited by this little polyester strap and I broke it. And the captain said, I don't know what it is with you solo sailors, why you just pop the clutches because the boats are always in motion and dropping the um, dagger board is, is never going to result in the board just like falling out the bottom of the boat because it's always moving, there's always hydrodynamic force. But first thing on the list, get the boards up. So boards start coming up, cranky cranky there. Backstay, I have to start looking at the backstay and make sure the backstay is ready to do what I need it to do. A little bit further down the list here, we're going to have to reef the mainsail. Okay, that's part of jibing and high wind in these big boats. Um, making sure that the backstay is in no way entangled in the like the back of the battens on the mainsail, something like that, that it's not got... We have little elastics that draw the backstay to the mast when it's not in use. They can get caught up where you've lifted a, a reef um, out and not noticed in the night that the top of the mainsail has got caught in the elastics and now you're about to jibe and if you do that it's going to grab the the top of the um, the backstay when you try and then get the backstay on it won't work it'll get messed up so you get very good at um, looking at the backstay for the first time okay is this backstay which hasn't been used for a while is it ready to move over I mean, we don't have full permanent backstays it's a running backstay system either one's on 
all the other ones on. Um, the one that's lazy is up behind the mainsail. If you're running and you're going from one angle to another, it's really out of sight around the back of this massive mainsail. Uh, then the ballast. So the ballast, your water ballast on board the boat, and it's going to have to start draining from one tank to the next. Again, this is something which you have to sort of set up. The ballast tanks themselves have valves at the bottom which are open and closed by hand or different boats. You've got like kind of um, Morse control um, handles that you pull, might be remote to the tanks. And um, you start to open all of the bottoms of the tanks um, but the water does not at this point transfer through to the tanks on the other side of the boat where you've also opened the valves as well. There's a crossover valve which uh, all of those various tanks all come into one meeting point which is the crossover valve which is normally a really big diameter like I know um, a foot like 30 centimeters something like that or more and uh, all the water is going to charge from one side of the boat to the other at the, the correct moment but you start to get everything lined up and you start to get all the crack valves open so everything is just sitting on that ballast valve and it's not held back by multiple valves so we go check the sail chart check vmg check the boards check the backstay saying this is a 45 minute operation to to turn this boat around but most of this is happening quite quickly and you can imagine how okay get the boards going get the backstay going start moving the ballast check the nav Check the nav because uh, once you get on the next course, like if you've made a mistake and it's shallow water or you're going around a reef or something like that, um, you can't just flick back onto the other course. It's going to be like the backstays are not going to allow you to do that. So before you change course, you always check nav. Next thing is, and it's reef main question mark, up to about 20 odd knots, 20, 25 true wind. Um, you may or may not reef the main, but there's so much force involved in these big square top mainsails flicking from one side to the other that uh, the leverage that it creates at the back of the boat as you go through the jibe will just swing the bow so far up to windward that you'll basically just um, uh, you'll just come up into wind on the other side. So you have to limit the amount that it can flick over and how much trouble it can create for you. Also, what we have to bear in mind here is that the main is going to be uh, wound very close to the center line of the boat at this point we're going to be moving this in massive mainsail from one side to another and as with all jibing um, there's massive forces are uh, available if you think of like a flag flying from a flag pole it's got two connection points under tension at the front of it and if the wind moves from 90 degrees it's not a problem the flag will just line back up with it even if the wind slowly goes around 180 degrees it's not a problem the flag's just going to line up with it the problem is if the wind was suddenly able to like go round the back of the, the trailing edge of the flag. There's nothing to hold it there. It would just compress the flag up against the flag post before it finally to, you know, flicked to the other side and flung the, the flag out on the other side. Now on the boat, the same thing's happening, but the bottom edge of the flag is your boom. And suddenly when that wind you know, just turns up on the other side of the mainsail, it moves the mainsail across very, very forcefully. And if you've got a boom attached to that, suddenly there's a lot of inertia. There's a lot of things in motion. And when the boom is 28 foot long and weighs about 70 kilos and the mainsail is, you know, I know 30 odd meters high and yeah, 28 foot. What's that like seven meters, eight meters on the bottom um, and it powers up on the other side. Uh, the boat is going to be directed by that mainsail. There's no two ways about it. You have to bring this mainsail in so it's got the littlest amount of movement possible when it flicks onto the other side so it doesn't impart too much leverage to the boat and the rudders can keep the boat on track. To that end, the boat's going to have to drive down a very, very exact course just before the jibe because you can't have the wind you know, powered up too much. You're going downwind, but if you're at like 100 
I don't know, 150 degrees apparent wind angle, and you've got the main pinned into the center, it's going to be very hard to steer downwind. Alternatively, if you go too far downwind, then the wind can accidentally flick onto the other side of the main because the main is so close to the center line. So you're driving your autopilot on a very narrow gauge, like only three or four degrees wide, and you get this mainsail and start to decide, am I going to put a reef in this? Is there so much power when it flicks over that it's actually going to flick the boat out of control? So if it's over 25 knots, then yes, you're probably going to put a reef in the mainsail. Just one person here. So getting reef in only takes a couple of minutes. So we go as fast as we can off the wind, get the main um, on the boat that I was on had a rotating wind mast. So we could do some tricks where we rotate the, the mast a little bit, ease up the mainsail, pull down the mainsail, get a reef in, set everything back up again. Next thing on my list, um, reef the headsail. If you've got a kite up and you're on your own and you're jibing in the Southern Ocean, um, you don't do it with uh, like some giant kite up and just you flick it from one side to another in, a, in a, like a blade jibe or something like you're in a gratter. You've got to snuff the kite entirely, put another headsail out. Now you may leave the kite forward of the headsail um, still in its sock, but if it's blowing 25 knots, it's, it's not great for the sock of the spinnaker to be thrown around up against these very strong, very tough sails for too long. So if that's the way you're going, you have to make sure that that mainsail comes unrolled very very smartly very very cleanly that the rolled unrolling of the headsail doesn't mix in with the kite which is in its can you see where this is going can you see why looking at <laughs> looking at jiving a very complicated boat like this should give you my perspective on jiving any kind of boat so anyway we decide whether we're going to reef the headsail or not um the headsail sheet the headsail sheet's got to be gotten ready on the other side of the boat it's a small detail but it looks like i missed it a few times so i added it into my notes what is important is that when the headsail goes over is after the jibe and that's because again I'm solo and we'll see that a little bit further down the list. I jibe the boat, set up the main and the headsail still on the wrong side um, and this headsail sheet uh, being in position is kind of key to that. Um, the downhaul. The downhaul on an open 60, there's no uh, vang or anything so the way that you pull the boom down is there's a line that comes from the end of the both ends of the boom essentially it has some slack in it so when you apply a downward force to it it's um you, you're pulling down on both ends of the boom sort of at the same time but obviously one end is the gooseneck so you get this downward force um a bit like an archer pulling down on a bow something like that but not quite because the <laughs> it's a v of rope and it's a straight carbon uh yard above it but it's um you're pulling down with the downhaul in a, in a way to get more sail shape also to secure the main a little bit but there's very little you can do to overpower the forces that are involved in an open 60 mainsail so it's mostly for trim and mostly just to stop the, the inertia of the boom from accidentally jibing the boat when you're not looking but that downhaul's got to come off don't for goodness sakes start to get into a jibe and then realize that the, the downhaul is is still on so um, and then the next mark is a sit rep and that is um, getting your head up out of the boat for a second and looking around and is there any traffic? What's the wave angles? A lot of times when I had to jibe the boat in heavy seas in the Southern Ocean, you're looking for the correct area of the uh, ocean in which to do the maneuver. And if you if you read um, like kind of wartime books about uh, things like, um, oh, what's it called? The Good Shepherd. That's the book that became Greyhound with Tom Hanks recently. The Good Shepherd is an excellent book all about being on a corvette, I think it was, in the Second World War. And when they do some of these crazy turns, um, they have to look with the ship and see like how big are the seas and you don't want to be coming around and getting whacked by something massive broadside and you don't really want to be turning around and then going up wave into some monster wave you want to pick a flat spot so again sit wrap for me is about traffic it's about the weather it's about you know just has the 
have the weather conditions uh, change? Has the wind angle change while you've been setting all this other stuff up? Um, and then we start to get into like the jibe proper main sheet. As I said, the main uh, mainsail is going to be pulled in quite close to the center line. You won't be able to pull it completely to the center line because it's just too massive. It's just too big and too powerful. But you're going to get it pretty close. And at that point, I'd then be wetting down and making sure that the winch for the main sheet is is wet. The ropes, which I um, used on that boat, uh, there was a mix of, um, it was all Dyneema, but the exterior of the ropes was either polyester or it was polyester and Technora. And um, pretty much everything that had to move at high temp temperatures had Technora in it. Technora is uh, much more you know, uh, resistant to high temperatures than polyester. But the main sheet, whatever had happened on that boat, <laughs> I remember on a, quite a few of the legs the main sheet ended up being polyester you're like jeepers you're like slipping the the rope on the winch and the sheath of the rope is uh is melting so you had to make sure there was um half a bucket of water gone over the main sheet but main sheet comes in at this point the tension is rising i having gone through this list thousands of times know that by the time it says main sheet in we are now committing to moving this boat from one side to another all the ballast is ready uh, the situ oh, we've done all this work to get the mainsail down and get the um, the headsail changed if that's what we need to do. We know that the boards are now by completely up and probably the opposite board has already been let go on its clutch and it's working its way down to a preset amount. The ballast, as I say, is ready to go. You go into the main sheet and then the backstay starts to come on. When the backstay comes on, um, you are fully committed. The only way of getting out of this now is to jibe and continue through what's happening or to undo a lot of work that you've done. And you're having to drive down this very, very tight corridor, like three or four degrees wide, where the the wind is not attempting to buffet the mainsail around too badly. Um, you've got enough speed on that you can get through the maneuver. Once the back stays in place, you can't let out the main. You can't let the main out on the other side until that back stays released. It's like it, it gets sort of uh, stressy at this point. At this point now, we press the button on the keel. The boat that I had before had a, um, a swinging keel um, with two massive uh, uh, hydraulic um, uh, um, cylinders inside which would control it. And then there was a, a pump that had to be used to, to move it. You could do it by manual, but it'd take forever. Um, you use this electric pump. And um, what I'd be doing at this point is I'd be pressing the center. So it would release the keel and the keel would go down to a center position from wherever it was. And that means that now these forces are really starting to act on this boat and the boat is starting to lean quite a long way over. The next part about it is, um, is the ballast. When the ballast starts to go across, you've got a good couple of tons of movement there. And now the boat is really... It's, you know, it's not got its keel in play. It's not got its ballast in play. In fact, the ballast is on the wrong side. The main's pinned in the center. This is like, as, as the ballast starts to move and as the keel starts to move, you have to now jive the boat. And that um, happens just after um, I press the autopilot. So I had a Raymarine autopilot uh, on that boat, but because it had a rotating wing mast, the Raymarine sensors were unable to take at that time, which is like 2011 or something, they were unable to take a extra input, which was to do with the mast rotation. So every time I jibed, I had to like set up the apparent wind angle on the opposite jibe, which is a bit of a faff, but you kind of got used to it. But it meant you couldn't use the auto jibe function. On a lot of autopilots, there'll be a button press combination where it'll put the boat through 40 or 50 or 60 degrees, whatever it is that you tell it is the amount that you want to jibe by. But for me, um, not having that, I would just drive the boat through the jibe by pressing the plus 10 or minus 10 button one, two, three, four, five, six times. And as that happened, the boat would start to turn. And then the backstay that I had been 
bringing on slowly would come on much tighter until ding 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 it's got enough tension at that point probably the main would start to fly across on its own it's only got a couple of turns on the winch i start to uh, ease that uh, main sheet as quick as i can i've dived to the side of the cockpit and i've whipped the top off the um the old working backstay the new backstay's got the weight and the old backstay starts to ease away as i ease 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 down the main sheet and probably let it about 30 or 40 foot a line out on the other side so now we've got the i press the button on the keel again the keel is coming up into the correct position which could be 15 or 20 degrees of movement the ballast is already across i seal off the things i need to do with that um we go and have a look at the um the headstall because we're so uh, concerned about the bow of the boat turning up into the wind when it goes through this jiving maneuver when the mainsail flicks from one side to another the headsail is uh, I always leave the headsail till after the jibe and the backed sail stops the head from rounding up too far into the breeze on the opposite side it's a kind of mechanical stop if the autopilot doesn't quite catch it so I let the sheet go across and trim my course and make sure I'm kind of on course going in roughly the right direction then I go down and check the nav and this is hard won knowledge from having made mistakes where um, I thought I got it right, but maybe it took me longer than I expected to get ready for the jibe or whatever it was, but I suddenly got onto the other jibe and then realized, holy mackerel, I'm on the wrong course, or, you know, this is just, I'm working with a, um, a current here, which is really putting me on a weird angle on this new course or whatever it is. So go down at this point, even if you've, um, messed it all up, you can set back up and go back through the jibe and get back onto the previous board, but you don't want to be doing, uh, you don't want to be realizing that you're on the wrong course when you then hoisted the main back up and put the headsail back up. So um, go and check the nav and then um, have a look at the mast. Because it was a rotating wind mast, I had to make sure that the wind mast was lined up and get the windex lined up. And then um, I'd be looking at my uh, VMG. Have I got the the velocity that I want uh, in the in the desired direction, my, my speed over the ground every other point. But often when it's you're jibing downwind, it's one um optimize vmg course to another optimized vmg course and trim to it if i need to and then top my ballast up and uh move all my personal gear from one side to another <laughs> so, all of that is one jibe so <laughs> that's where i come from when we're talking about jibing that's how you jibe an open 60 and i guess it's the same for a lot of other boats that have foils and keels and and running backstays and all the rest of it. Obviously, if you've got a lot of crew on the boat, that can happen very, very quickly. Every single one of these things is me doing it. Um, if you've got loads of people on board, then of course you're going to reduce your jibing time to like four minutes easily, right? But um, that's how I, I go through it. And even though I'm jibing boats which have an easier setup uh, because we have more people on board, because we're not dealing so much with boards and ballast and that kind of stuff and keels that have to move, um, these things still go through my head because because I've messed it up. I've messed it up so many times and ended up in so many like <laughs> boat on its side type positions that uh, I take jibing very, very seriously. Now, because we allowed ourselves the uh, avenue to talk about tacking a little bit, tacking has a, a really beneficial role to play in all this. Obviously, if you're beating to windward or if that's what your course is, then okay. But actually in the open ocean for a solo sailor, um, you can choose whether you want to tack or jibe dependent on the circumstances. When I'm sailing, say, Challenger, her autopilot seems to... Look, most of the time, Challenger is used by big groups of people. So very rarely do we actually get the autopilot out and actually and use the autopilot. Obviously, we wouldn't use it in any kind of crude race. And um, I guess I kind of got used to driving that boat without the autopilot because it doesn't work all the time. So anyway, it's got this autopilot. 
doesn't work. I have then learned to drive this 60 foot boat without an autopilot. And I did that deliberately because um, because I'd had times when the autopilot stopped working on, on, a, on a boat at sea on my own. And um, I was petrified by that situation that, you know, this how could you handle this big boat without this machine to do the job for you? And the answer is you can. Um, you just need to be a little bit canny about it. But if I'm in the open ocean, I'm on um, challenge on my own. If I've got a kite up, um, and I, I, I got to say, when I'm sailing on my own with no autopilot with these big boats, I'm going at probably half of her normal polar speeds and I'm doing it with a much reduced mainsail. If if we don't get into that too deeply here, too not too much of a tangent, if you're on your own and you have any issues with the steering, i.e. the steering's broken, you can't attend to the steering, like the, you, know, you don't have an autopilot, just reduce how much mainsail you've got up. If you don't take anything else from this, take that. It will make everything easier. Emergency steering is easier. Uh, soloing without an autopilot is easier. Just reduce the main, reduce the main, reduce the main. So anyway, I've still got a small mainsail up and I've got uh, a kite on the go and I want to tack essentially. Instead of exposing myself to all that spray and wind and bouncing around and the, the inevitable possibility that on my own without a crew, without the autopilot going, I may well miss the tack, you know, kind of come up into irons and then fall back onto the old board. Um, what I'll do is just lazily go down, 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 down into a, a jive position, running away from the wind, get everything set up nicely. The helm is very easy to balance. I can kind of keep coming back and making sure it's uh, uh, roughly lined up where it needs to be. Again, there's no autopilot. And then uh, put the put the mainsail across, go forward, lazily put the, the, the headsail across, and you're on the other board. You've, you've used the jive as a tool to get you from one one tack to the other you know it's the most lazy thing possible but if you're on your own who like who does it who does it offend like nobody going the other way you can have situations where you're um downwind and you're so fearful of the <laughs> the explosion when you go from one jibe to the other that you'll actually come up hard non and then go through the tack to then ease it all back out on the other side not something i'm really keen for doing there's was one thing about going downwind which you can have a lot more sail area up than you would ever take upwind and that's good whether you're cruising or racing. Obviously, that gives you your you know speed off the wind. But um, there's a reckoning that comes if you turn around and start going back up wind. Somehow you, you're going to be exposed to the the full effect of the wind on all that sail area. So with racing boats which are going downwind with massive sails up, we really don't want to get in a situation where we have to come up into the wind and go into attack. So jibing is something which. Uh, you're trying to get maximum performance. You're trying to get maximum safety. You're trying to put as little wear cycles on your gear as possible. So we have to break it down into lots and lots of little steps. I see some people jibing quite small boats um, in quite a haphazard fashion. I guess if you've not had an accident or you've not had breakage, then the the, the thought is, well, nothing will go wrong until it does happen. And then everybody gets a lot more kind of aware of it. Like the classic thing is why is the boom called the boom right because it goes boom when it hits you on the head when you're jiving intentionally or accidentally but the reality is that can be a pretty debilitating injury and obviously if someone goes into the water from it as millions of sailors have in the history of time um it's a very very dangerous situation so i've, I've raced with people who will literally just in a 40-foot boat just go from one you know competitive downwind leg just swing the wheel and the main goes bang out on the other side. And they rely a lot of the time on the fact that um, there's other crew there who are going to soften the, uh, the the action as it goes across. Maybe hold the main sheet a little bit, slow it a little bit, um, 
maybe take in on the main sheet and then ease it back out when it gets to the end of its travel. Um, or they they know there's enough budget on the race boat that it'll just get fixed, you know. So um, the force that they then impart to the gooseneck, to the vang, and potentially even to the shrouds if they hit them, and the spreaders when the upper part of the sail hits it, and they're not really too fussed about that. So it looks super impressive, but if you end up doing that long term on a boat that you're actually trying to keep in one piece, it, it really won't work out that well. And I think one of the things that... Um, always comes to mind when I think of driving, I think of damage and what have you, is I think of ships back in the day for whom uh, going to windward, like trying to tack up to, to windward, was an incredibly difficult um, maneuver because of the way the boats were built at that time. Think back in the day, they thought that the best uh, design for a boat was that it was bluff in the bow like a cod and fine in the stern like a mackerel. Um, that was going to give you all you needed. They didn't really have any concept we talked about before of lateral resistance, that the boat is going to be pressed sideways by the wind and if it if it is able to travel sideways easily then there's going to be a huge amount of leeway that is most um pressingly expressed during the period of time just after attack that uh, the bow of the boat goes through the wind and then on the other side on the new uh, the new tack that you're on the bow gets pressed off very very considerably um, we use speed flowing uh, over the keel and over the rudder and over the hull to get aerodynamic st- sorry uh, hydrodynamic stability and then kind of press up back onto the wind but back in the day with a tall ship it's slow enough getting all those yards around anyway if you were able to tack and didn't go into irons and got onto the other board then you'd probably be pressed way off the wind so you had two ways of of maneuvering those ships you had jibing which is what we're talking about today and then we had box hauling so because we've been able to include tacking here a little bit we can describe all these maneuvers but box hauling would be that you would drive up into the wind um, with your square soles at right angles to the center line of the boat and uh, allow the wind to press you backwards put the wheel over to the opposite side so that the, the bum of the boat then starts to rotate the bow away from the wind and then uh, the boat would come to a standstill the yards would be made sharp up on the new on the new board and uh, and angled to the center line and then the boat would start to pick up way and get going on the other board so you do like this three point turn instead of tacking the bow around you drive up into the wind then go backwards and turn the boat and then set off in the new direction so jibing was like well it's kind of an option wasn't it but then the other option was totally awful so both were performance killers and if you were trying to get off a lee shore and your only way of getting off a lee shore is jibing or doing a three-point turn into the wind it's like it's pretty pretty crappy <laughs> options right you know i remember doing that once so we could include in this um maybe we should introduce a new section which is like the jibe of your life um it, write to me with the jibes of your life that have saved you or put you into terrible danger um jibes have that kind of explosive moment where you fully commit and whatever happens next is happening there's just no doubt about it and um, i remember being on a the Four Peaks race in Hong Kong, where it's a sailing and running race. I think they have the Three Peaks in the UK. We have the Four Peaks in Hong Kong. And um, you, you know, little boats, you know, like 30, 40 foot, something like that. And uh, they, they race from a start line to one landing zone where two people get off and go and run up this mountain. And then they come back, back on the boat, sail to the next landing zone. They Two more people jump off and run. I was working for the Outer Bound School and we had these um, these incredible boats. I was so in love with these boats. They were luggers. And luggers are really fast uh, little kind of boats. Uh, loose-footed mainsail um, and loose-footed mizzen. Big yards up in the air. And uh, these boats have been specially developed for the Outer Bound School in Hong Kong. They're about 36 foot long. 
um, beautiful line to them um, when these fiberglass or maybe even calm fiber unstayed masts with these wicked rake on them and uh, carbon fiber or fiberglass uh, yards up in the air uh, say no stays um, and, uh, and, a, and a, a, a retractable centerboard what's that called a lifting keel so we had these boats we got outward bound instructors on board and everybody else has got like thin keeled um, 25 to 35 maybe 40 foot boats and so we realized very quickly we had some advantages namely we could lift the centerboard up and get very very close in on the um, the drop-offs and put really put our runners out almost into waist deep water so we didn't have to anchor and put off kayaks and all this stuff so we're doing pretty good we get to um, Lama Island. So I know there's Len, of course, listening to this podcast. Hello, Len. Um, one of big supporters over on Patreon. And um, we get to Lama Island and we have to run up Mount Stenhouse. Is that correct? Yes, I used to live on Lama. Yeah, Mount Stenhouse. So me and my mate uh, Ben get out. We run up and um, fine. Goes well. We run it pretty quickly. No problem at all. Come back down on the other side. The outward bound instructors are there. We jump in the boat and set off. And because we've just run we're really sleepy then so we go into the little four peak where there's just enough place for two people to lie down and sleep so we're getting our sleep in and um like x amount of time later on like x amount of time being it's dark inside the cavern of a boat at sea like who knows how much time i hear all these voices and i hear the engine come on so i'm like well, that doesn't sound good but this is me i'm like 18 i know about climbing i've been on a tall ship a few times i know about mechanicking so i haven't really done that much sailing and uh, Ben, my mate, gets up, goes on deck. And then I hear this Mick on deck. And back in the day, my, my nickname was Mick. I was uh, when we went out to Hong Kong, there was more than one person called Chris. So I had this hat like Mick Dundee. So for like literally seven years from uh, 18 onwards, I was I was called Mick. So I hear this Mick, Mick on deck. So I stick my head through the hatch and uh, it's like this crazy scene out of a film or something. Um, it's there's uh lightning in the sky but like dry lightning the sky is just lit by lightning it's not raining or anything it's not fork lightning it's just a lot of crazy stuff going on the clouds which you get in countries with you know really hot moist uh, um, environments and uh all of the outward bound instructors are at the oars they've got their backs to me i've come up out of the four peak at the very front of the boat it's an open cockpit boat essentially and um there's 10 people with their backs to me pulling on oars uh no not not pulling on oars pushing on oars okay so the bow of the boat yeah they're pushing the oars away from the bow of the boat they are trying to um get the boat to stop going forwards this becomes quite apparent and then i look at the helmsman who is facing towards me which is my friend ben who's jumped out and uh, he's got the engine hard astern so we've got <laughs> 10 people rowing the boat backwards and the engine hard astern and i turn around and there's this massive mainsail um kind of covering over everything i can see out to starboard and uh as i look over to port there's uh, massive cliffs like i don't know you know stories improve over time right so they weren't very far away let's put it that way <laughs> scary close like i know 100 150 feet something like that and it's blowing it's it's blowing like 20 knots but it's blowing and there's definitely no reefs in this massive sails it's a very quick boat and uh the situation i come up into is that i'm you know what's that 19 years old at that time i know diddly squit about sailing and uh he's calling me on deck because these junior outbound instructors have no clue what to do and uh they're just caught up in a situation where they're being blown onto the rocks so i run to the back of the boat and take the helm because i don't know why because i was not exactly that guy at that time but uh, i had a fair idea what needed to happen and uh, i put the engine full ahead and told him to 
pull the oars in as quick as they could. And um, we shot in towards whatever was, you know, the depth of the water. I don't know, however, but I could see where the rocks were. And I assumed that the rocks went straight down underwater in the way that they were above the water. And uh, as soon as I got to within what I thought was, you know, maximum tolerance, I jived the boat and uh, flicked the sail onto the other side, um, put the engine um, into neutral, and we sailed away from that uh, with all the instructors just freaking out. And I said to them, you know, what, uh, what went wrong? And uh, they basically had stalled their tax. They'd stalled their tax trying to get away from this island. That was kind of the commotion we'd heard on deck. Then they turned the engine on to try and um, I think power through a, a, a tack or something and it just hadn't happened not enough skills on deck not enough communication not enough awareness of uh, the situation around them and the wind strength and how to deal with this boat with this uh, this giant mainsail and yard up in the air and um, <clears throat> I guess that was one of the first points when I realized like I have some natural instincts for this thing but it was a jibe that uh, well it was it was one of the jibes that I've done that have got me out of a lot of danger um, but then of course propelled me into another 25 years of sailing. So um, if you have uh, <laughs> jibes that have saved you or jibes that have uh, cursed you, I would love to hear about those. People have been writing to me with some really interesting stuff recently. It's been very cool. I had, uh, we're going to talk about this more during the questions and answers or questions and tangents rather the next time I do that. But um, Camilla Ransom over on uh, Patreon was asking me what are my top 10 books because I've got this other podcast called Rare Nautical Reads where I'm reading these uh reading these famous books, uh, sailing books. And that's been going really, really well. It was a bit weird recently. I had to stop. I had to stop because um, my uh, canine on my port side of my mouth uh, cracked and uh, and sheared off and uh, a lot of uh, hassle ensuing. I've been quite hard on my teeth through the years. I even for like stripping wire and opening beer cans and everything. But this was actually um, an old problem where I didn't have my wisdom teeth uh, removed when I was younger. And uh, they create a lot of compression and, and uh, cracks on the side of my teeth. So I knew that that tooth was going to go in the end. And, uh, and and so it did. So it's very easy to talk with fluffling fuckatash as I got a big gap missing. So I took a week to try and learn how to not fluff my way through the things I'm talking about. But anyway, um, Renautica Reads now back underway. And we're reading this story, of course, by uh, Alan Kala of him going around the world in Manoraver in 1972. Pretty amazing. Um, but Camilla was asking me, um, what were my top 10 uh, sailing reads, you know, that I'd learned from over time? I said to her, hey, let's turn this into a thing. Let's do top five. So she's just sent me her top five books. I'm going to compile mine. So I'd love to hear what your top five books are. And if you're over on Patreon, you can join the conversation there. Um, $5 a month supporting the podcast. And we've got a new newsletter we're going to be sending out to all $5 a month um, people once a week. Um, it's going to be whatever we're doing with the channel, where we're doing the podcast. Yes, what I'm doing with Spartan as well. But a lot of the people who are listening to the podcast are interested in going sailing anyway. So I figure there's not too much of a, not too much of a crossover there. That's a problem. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's getting fun over there. We've got 53 patrons now, and uh, yeah, I'm enjoying getting the questions. And we had a, um, a competition giveaway that Katie organised the other day. Um, lots of fun. But the point being what, um, if you have a jibe that uh, saved you from something or got you into a load of trouble, I'd love to hear about it. A very specific maneuver that we all know carries a lot of tension with it. So um, back in the day, jibing was one of the only options along with box hauling to get a, a vessel round. As it is today, jibing is still something which creates a lot of um, nervousness for people. I would say because of the kind of boats I've come from, from big ships down to um, racing boats, I have a lot of caution about going into a jive. There's a couple of things which I can say which maybe would um, 
be of some assistance to people who are sailing, uh, you know, different kinds of boats, more cruising based boats or not as powerful race boats. But that those tips are born out of a very conservative approach, which I've developed through offshore sailing. So one of the first ones is that if a jibe goes really badly wrong, um, it can have some pretty catastrophic events on your on your afternoon, like all of the silverware is going to be on the floor. So um, how do we avoid that? One of the things which is key is that when I get people up and they're, you know, they know how to sail, but they're driving one of the big boats for the first time, they'll often um, go into a jibe sequence and they're, they're driving at the angle they want to drive. Let's imagine we're going quite deep uh, downwind here with like 150 apparent wind angle and we're going to be flicking over to 150 apparent wind angle on the other side. And I'm doing this by apparent wind angle because that's kind of key to what I'm going to talk about. But obviously that far off the wind, we'd probably normally express it in true wind angle and true wind speed. So let's imagine we're going downwind and we've got... Um, 15 or 20 knots like Caribbean conditions 15 or 20 blowing and you're coming back down the course at Antigua race week or something like that and you've got to jibe the boat um, we're at 150 uh, apparent wind angle and there is we need to get over to the other side so what's the things that we need to kind of like contemplate first if it boats at all quick then you're going to have an issue where you've got a very different apparent wind angle than it appears looking at the windex and it appears looking at the apparent wind angle indicator and unless your instruments are quite dialed in um, and and showing true wind angles correctly it's very easy to make a mistake and it goes something like this you're sailing along you know trying to get as much speed as you can even though you're off the wind and it doesn't necessarily sink home quite how much the apparent wind angle and true wind angle can be different you can feel like you've still got the wind quite far over to one side, like 25, 35 degrees off the back of the boat, and you're feeling quite comfortable about what's going on. Completely forgetting, of course, that the apparent wind angle is a, a vector which is made up of the wind coming over the bow of the boat. Even though you're going downwind, the wind is being created by the motion of the boat through the water, and that's being added to the wind vector that's blowing just naturally across the surface of the ocean. But now we've got two vectors that are almost like opposing each other, massive, um, massive difference in the direction of the force. So they're really kind of canceling each other out and it can have a very dramatic effect on the wind angle that you uh, feel or that you see in a windex. If you are able to run with a true wind angle, none of this is an issue. And that's something to be said for autopilots. When you have an autopilot system, um, if you are doing primarily downwind sailing, like you know you're going to cross the Atlantic doing you know, a trade wind route, you're better to tell your autopilot system to drive by true wind. If you're going to be doing a lot of upwind work and you're about to set up your autopilot and get into it, then tell it to drive by apparent wind angle because it's going to make a lot better job of it. With the race boats, with a solo setup, you have two completely separate autopilot systems and one is set up to go upwind and one is set up to go downwind either obviously can do either job but one's more kind of um you know maneuvered and kind of adjusted to be good in that direction and one of the things is that it's it's driving by true wind angle downwind rather than apparent wind angle so if you're sailing the boat downwind yourself then it's very smart to think well true wind angle must be the kind of important thing to be looking at here rather than apparent wind angle and that's definitely the case because of something called the apparent wind or is it the downwind apparent wind cliff? Is that right? Or the apparent downwind cliff. Like however you put those words together, the apparent wind, when you're going downwind, <laughs> there's a cliff. That's the main thing to remember. And I can remember, um, I remember going through this with one of my clipper crew when we were coming back from going around the world. It was Jez, who was one of the most solid 
uh, Southern Ocean Helms underkite that I had on the boat. He was absolutely brilliant and fearless, which was which was amazing to to have him on the crew. But we were coming, we'd gone all the way around the world, forty three thousand miles, and we're coming back into the River uh, Humber up in Hull there in northeastern UK. And uh, we were having this conversation as he was helming under kite. And then I suddenly like made a breakthrough in my explanation of what the downwind, apparent wind, whatever that is, cliff. And he's like, oh, and he kind of got it. And I thought, Jesus, he just sailed like 10,500 miles through the Southern Ocean under kite. And he didn't know this thing. But the apparent wind angle is likely to go off a cliff angle-wise at a certain uh, angle downwind. Depends on your boat, depends on the setup, maybe even the sail conditions, all sorts of things. But you're going to think the wind is like fully on your left shoulder, and then you're going to turn a little bit further downwind, and the boat speed will drop, so that wind coming over the bow that you're creating as you drive along, it suddenly changes its velocity, and um, that has a catastrophic effect on the apparent wind angle that you've been steering to, to the point that suddenly the wind can actually, you start to realize the wind is on the other shoulder. And if your mainsail is too close to the center line, then it gets whipped over for you and that's, uh, you've, you've crashed jibed. So um, being very aware of where the apparent wind is and the difference between the apparent wind and the true wind is important. And knowing that there won't be a, a linear relationship between the wind angle and your steering angle as you go into those very deep angles away from the wind if that makes any sense certainly on racing boats that's a very important um do we have to get into sports boats and asymmetrics and going downwind i feel like we've done that before but let, let's just see if we can briefly go over it. i think it's connected <clears throat> if you are um driving downwind in quite a heavy boat with quite a conservative sail area, it may well be that your boat is fitted with a spinnaker pole and a big symmetric kite that you can put fully out to one side and your mainsail out to the other side and put your preventers on and everything. And then um, you're secure and safe and you'll be going very, very downwind. And that's something that uh, quite a, a rounded hull shape and a heavy boat that's how it gets from upwind to downwind. It just kind of points down there. You make a big, um, one big sail out of your mainsail and your kite and then you blow downwind. The thing with sports boats is that they're very light in the hull and they have quite a large amount of power available from big towering rigs and uh, big deep keels and what they can do is they can blast reach, you can set off at like a broad reaching angle like the fastest angle you can sail the boat at basically and even though it's not heading towards that bottom mark if you jibe and jibe and jibe and jibe and you can get nice jibes in with good angles downwind, the extra amount of distance that you'll cover will be made up for by the extra speed that you've got. And you'll arrive at the bottom mark quicker than your boat would have done if it had just a spinnaker pole and, a, and its mainsail and a symmetric kite. But it's to do with the hull shape and the weight of the boat and the design and everything else. It's then not fair to take a big heavy boat with a conservative sail plan and then put a symmetric, uh, sorry, an asymmetric kite on it and expect to jibe it downwind and to get to the bottom mark faster than your boat can get there with its normal pole and its symmetric kite. So, you know, horses for courses. But if you are going to take that method of getting from the top mark to the bottom mark, you're going to jibe your way down sports boat fashion, then jibing the boat is going to become a, a crucial element of a performance, not just that, you know, we're worried about hurting ourselves or jibing or anything else. We've got to move past that now, move to, is this going to be quick? Because if you're choosing that method of getting downwind, you're no good at jibing, or your boat's very slow to jibe, your crew are kind of a little bit clueless for the day, then 
jibing downwind is not going to be quicker, is it? You may as well just put the kite out and go straight from the top to the bottom as best you can with as few as jibes as possible. But if you're going to jibe the boat, then it needs to get real slick. And if you're doing it on something that's, you know, Mills 41 or a TP52 or something like that, obviously you can have a crew which are pretty dialed in doing this. And that kite that's running that boat at these jibing angles downwind is probably going to be asymmetric rather than being a symmetric kite with a pole it's going to be asymmetric and flown probably from a, a bowsprit so then we have to learn how to jibe the kite if we're doing a symmetric kite um, we know that we're going to have to disconnect the pole from the guy the pole then end is going to be dropped down the topping lift is going to lower that pole down it's going to swing through come up get onto the guy on the other side and the kite will just kind of rotate from where it is in front of you on one side of the mast and then do, 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 over to the other side, boop, and there it is, and the main goes through. If you're doing it with a asymmetric kite, it's a lot more dynamic kind of movement. And um, there's, there's two methods of, of uh, jiving the kite at that point, inside and outside. If you're going inside, the bow is gonna have to set up the sheets so that they are inside the luff of the spinnaker and outside the forestay of the boat. So that this kite then is gonna be um, transferring its uh, clue from one side of the boat through the gap between its own luff and the forestay where the, the jib goes up and down or where the jib is rolled up. Okay, So it's going to get into quite a tight little pocket there, but a crew that knows what they're doing and nicely set up sheets that don't have big knots on them and big clips that get stuck on the forestay, you can ease the tack line just a little bit, put a little bit more curve in the luff, and then as the boat goes through the turn from one side to the another, the um, the uh, foredeck and the uh, whoever, your marsman, whatever it is, whoever does the job on your boat, they start pulling like Billy O on the new sheet and the trimmers are zizzing that through the uh, drum as fast as they possibly can. As soon as the load comes on, the grinders or whoever that is above the, the winch or on a separate pedestal, they're going to put power into the winch <clears throat> and the trim's going to come on and the kite's going to be on the other side. What a dream that is. <laughs> because we do mostly stuff with um, amateur sailing, um, you know, it, it very rarely happens like that, let's be honest. So it ends up with a lot of kite uh, forward of the forestay and behind the forestay and the clues caught up in the, um, between the, the luff of the sail and the forestay, like it's a bit of a nightmare. So on big boats, um, we tend to, if you don't have a really tight crew, then we tend more to have the um, sheets of the kite run outside of the luff of the sail and that's called blading it round or an outside jibe. And the sheets then are set up to run um, around the front of the kite. And for most people, this is how they'll, they'll do it on an asymmetric boat. And you have that little thing that sticks up uh, ahead of the kite where the sheet of the kite lays onto it. It's kind of like a little plastic finger sticking up from the tack of the sail ahead of the sail. And that allows the lazy sheet to stay on top of the bowsprit, on top of that thing which North Sails call a jibulator. So there you go, it turns a kite into a jib. That's what a jibulator is, but um, I think most everybody else calls it a dick or something along those lines. But um, you've got to get the, the sheet in there before you, you, you jibe the boat. And then big release on the kite sheet as all of this stuff is going on with the mainsail behind, obviously. Big release on the kite sheet. The kite goes forward and the boat rotates from the angle that it was on onto the angle it needs to be on for the other board. There's no bit where you go dead downwind in an asymmetric boat. That's one of the things that's very different. When you've got a, a symmetric boat, the kite starts to rotate. And although, of course, you do make it go from one side to the other, there is a bit where you're passing through that 
downwind zone and the kite's just rotating the mains going through the kite's pretty happy for a moment maybe a bit of a twist and a jiggle in it but with an asymmetric uh, kite you're very much going from we are on this board and now we are on the other board and you're trying to get that kite round as as quick as you possibly can a lot of rope moving during those jibes um, getting that skill worked out so that it's very very efficient is is a, a key uh, skill to develop as a race team if you're going to choose to be in a sports boat and go downwind and have lots more jibes it's a bit of a pickle if you can't get the trim on quickly enough, if it gets all caught around the forestay and around its own luff, and you end up adding 10, 15, 20 seconds to every jibe, and then you're expecting to win a maths game against the boats which are going straight from the top mark to the bottom with symmetric kites. So jibing is an area to, to develop as much as you can. Also during jibing, there's plenty of ways of really wrecking the boat, particularly if you've got running backstays and your main goes across super hard and then you break all the battens in your mainsail, which can be very expensive. Um, certainly on the boats we've got, we're using often uh, 25 mil fiberglass battens that are up to eight or nine meters long. So you're talking like 27 foot long battens. Um, Primarily because uh, the fiberglass ones are actually cheaper and more flexible and more likely to give way during a uh, amateur uh, evolution gone wrong than carbon bands. Because if you do it with carbon bands, you break them every time if you don't know what you're doing. So um, the main going through, uh, a lot of control required, that kite going through, a lot of control required. And then understanding what exactly is the game you're trying to play to get to the bottom mark or what's the game that you're playing trying to get to the next port or get in before dark or whatever it is. Maybe, you know, you do a lot of cruising. And when I talk about racing stuff, you're like, what do I need to know? Well, if you've made a uh, calculation of when you're going to be able to get over that sandbar and into that port and that time is 6.30 and it's 6.15 now and you've got to get there quick, like knowing how to jibe downwind efficiently should be in your repertoire and then you decide not to use it because you're cruising but to go cruising and say i don't need to learn how to move the boat at uh, its maximum efficiency seems like counterintuitive to me but what else can we say about jibing that's going to uh, that's going to help out i guess one thing i would throw in here is that um, make sure that your main sheet is not so long that your boom can hit the shrouds um, for a lot of boats it's quite easy for the boom to come in contact with the shrouds if the main sheet is let go completely and yet it's mega easy to have someone just push the boom out in port and measure just on one side obviously um you know how far can the boom go out if the likelihood of the boom needing to be up against the shrouds i think is very very low um I, I know with some smaller boats that may be incorrect that that's a thing certainly with bigger boats where the boom weight is enough to dismast the boat um i always make sure that the main sheet is um is short enough that it, it the boom cannot hit the shrouds and if it's somebody else's boat just put a, an admiralty stopper knot into the main sheet so that it can't go through to the point where you don't want it to don't want it to be and then you can take it out afterwards right if they really like having a super long sheet but that's the worst thing in the world if someone's messing around with the main sheet winch the boom goes flying through and then the main sheet comes off the winch or some something else is happening and then the the boom hits the shrouds because obviously um then it's like a, a battle of the two titans neither of which you want to win because one means dismasting the bow and the other means snapping the boom or damaging the boom quite close to the gooseneck so uh, making sure the sheet is short is a good idea the other thing of course is to understand how preventers work and if you haven't come across these um, a preventer is anything which prevents something from moving. There's all kinds of preventers you could have on a boat, but if you've got a sloop rig and the only boom or yard that's uh, in operation is your 
boom, your main boom under your mainsail, then there's only really one preventer that you're going to be rigging, and that's from the boom to the side deck or some other point on the boat to stop the boom from moving around unexpectedly when you're jibing. So let's have a quick chat about those. There's there's two ways of doing this. There's um, the kind of long-winded way, and then there's the short way. The short way seems like a good idea until it goes wrong. Uh, the long way is the only way of doing it if you're actually going to rely on this thing to help you out. So what's the difference? The short way of doing it is to take a line around the boom and attach it onto something like the shrouds or off the boom and down to some pad eye on the deck by the shrouds. It's to hold the boom out away from the center line and stop it moving around. And if you've got a, you know, a relatively conservatively rigged boat and it's very light airs, something just round the boom to stop the, the, the boom from rolling into the center line and crossing them, recrossing the, the, the deck might, might be all that you need. But as soon as the wind gets up, as soon as it's any kind of a size of a boat, you're going to have to have a proper preventer setup. So let's have a look at what that is. The best way I've seen it done is the way that I was taught during Clipper. And I've seen that basically instituted by every race office who's ever asked to see our preventer setup. Like we can do the Newport Muda race. They want to see your preventer setup. Like how have you got this rigged? Um, I've certainly had conversations with inspectors at the with Rourke events, but I don't think Rourke are quite so bothered about these kind of details. Definitely the uh, US sailing are much more on top of this stuff. So what they want to see is some line attached to the outboard end of your boom, to the crane end of the boom, um, very securely. This could be done by slinging something round the boom and securing it on top. It could go through some like fitting that goes through the boom at the end. Oftentimes the spindles that go through the sheaths have a hole through the center on race boats. You can go through there. Um, there may be a dedicated uh, carbon strop or um, uh, uh, Dyneema strop rather that comes forward and allows you to attach. But whatever it is, it has to be securely attached to the end of the boom. And then what are you securing out there? Well, let's, let's, I always like to break these systems down by like, how do they work? And then we'll know what the right thing is because we'll know what are the desired characteristics. So we have to secure something to the outer end of the boom because we're not going to be able to get out to the outer end of the boom when the boom is eased out from the side of the boat. So we're going to have to have a rope and it's going to need to be attached to the end of the boom securely. So that line is best attached to the boat by attaching way forward somewhere up by the prow. Okay, so if you've got um, downhauls which are being used on your spinnaker poles, if you've got uh, twin downhauls, if, if you've got twin spinnaker poles, if you've got anything like that, or if you have uh, a hard point on the foredeck which is holding your downhaul, that's the kind of level of, of gear you're going to have to have to, to hold a proper preventer system. So the end's going to come, the line, sorry, is going to come from the end of the boom and it's going to go all the way to the front of the boat. It could come in and go around a cleat. That could be a way for doing it. You've got a line that runs up the deck, goes through the center of the cleat up forwards or it's hooked around the back of the cleat and then it attaches to the end of the boom. What I guess that brings up is there's going to have to be a connection point between this line that runs up the deck and out through somewhat hardware on the foredeck and it's going to have to connect to this line that's attached to the boom. You can't just have the line rigged all the time. It would be, it'd be, be in the way all the time, wouldn't it? So there's going to be a connection point. What's the connection point going to be? A snap shackle is a very good option because if it's ever under any load, then the easiest way to open it is to put a, a tripping spike through it or a marlin spike through it if you have to. Or like me, I've got my knife, which opens those big snap shackles. Um, you need to be able to get this thing open under load in case you ever crash drive the boat and the preventer's on it needs to be released. So we're going to have a line that's attached to the end of the boom. We're going to have a line that comes through from the 
the four deck and there's gonna be a connection point. So where's the best place for the connection point? Well, if the snap shackle is on the end of the a line which is on the deck, then you've got a line which is like, well, it could be a jib sheet or a spinnaker sheet. You've got a, a, a dynamo or a polyester line which runs up the deck, turns on the deck, comes back and it's got a snap shackle on the end of it. Brilliant, okay, so the snap shackle needs to attach to a loop. So the line which comes out the end of the boom needs to have a loop on the other end of it. Where's the obvious place to have a loop? At the gooseneck. So there's gonna be something which goes under the boom, which is a line attached to the far end of it. It's got a loop that's by the gooseneck. And the best way for it to be held up out the cockpit is to have a piece of elastic that goes around the boom that it is, you know, you get it out from that piece of elastic and then you use it, then you put it back through the other piece of elastic and you can just have a little lashing at the gooseneck that holds that line in place. So what's the characteristics of the line we're gonna use? Because it's big boats that I'm working on and because it's most likely to be a jib sheet or a spinnaker sheet that I'm using for this task, it's gonna be a Dyneema line on deck. It's gonna be appropriately sized to my clutches, jammers and winches, okay? So for me, that's like a 12 or 14 mil line. The line that's under the boom is interesting because it could just be the same. It could just be Dyneema, right? But there's a particular thing that we're trying to achieve with this preventer, which is worth considering when we choose this piece of line. It means that it leads, thinking in this way leads us to a particular choice here, which I'm trying to lead you to with, with this logic. Um, imagine that you're driving along and the preventer is on, and because like a problem with the autopilot or the helm loses concentration, they turn so far downwind that the wind actually gets behind the, the main, behind the boom, main boom, as it's prevented out. It's held by a line going from its end to the foredeck of the boat. Now the boat rounds up into the wind and its, um, its headsail, whatever its headsail may be, stops it from coming right into irons upwind with the mainsail in irons. Now you've got it like pinned on its side and that boom is held way, way, way out to one side by this preventer. If that was so, it would start to push the, the boat beyond 90 degrees flat on the surface of the ocean and would start to push it so that the decks are now overhanging, that the mast tip is, you're risking putting the mast tip into the water, which is a very bad idea. So we want to have it that the preventer holds the boom in place and yet when it gets really, really bad, like, uh-oh, we've crashed jibed the boom with the preventer on, um, that somehow it's going to like, things are gonna turn out okay. And the choice of line that we make for this bit going from the end of the boom, slinging underneath the boom, and then lashed off at the gooseneck, that's where it lives most of the time. What we can do is we can spec that as hawser-laid nylon rope. And hawser-laid nylon rope, particularly when it's wet, has like 20% stretch. Now if you had one big nylon rope running from the cockpit up to the front of the boat and then back to the boom, there'd be so much stretch in it that you'd have to bring it on so tight to remove all the stretch that it wouldn't be able to do this little thing I'm gonna elucidate you on now, right? What you can do is if you've got a line with very little stretch and then you've got a section of the line which is about the same length as your boom, what it's gonna mean is that you can bring the line on tight and most of the time, the small amount of stretch that's gonna be available from that line is not gonna allow the boom to crash jive. But if you get caught in a situation where now the boat is being pinned over on its side by this boom that's prevented up in the air by your cleverly rigged preventer, there is enough stretch, particularly in a wet nylon line, for it to just slowly stretch and stretch and allow that boom to come down, 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 and come down so it's a lot flatter and a lot closer to the surface of the water, if not actually pass through and go on to the other jibe. It gives you that little a little bit of safety that your preventer is not gonna end up becoming a massive problem for you. Because particularly if you're at the helm 
and you're the only one that really knows what's going on and you're telling someone, ease the preventer, ease the preventer, like you do with a vang when you're going downwind and you're freaking out about the vang. Vang, 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 you know, try and get the vang off and release pressure. It's very difficult sometimes people start to freeze up. But if they start to freeze up and their job is to ease the preventer, like you as the driver, you're going to have to, what, cross the cross the main seat track to get to the cockpit to ease the preventer or have the cockpit set up so that the preventers by it's very tricky it's better if you choose the right materials so most of the time the line which is your normal like jib sheet it's got minimal amount of stretch it's doing what it's doing and then that section that's under the boom has got this ability to just <clears throat> pardon me, increase its load increase its length by 20 odd percent and give you that little bit that you need so the boom can pass um, at least to the center line so you can stop your main sheet from being too long so you don't take out the shrouds. You can rig a preventer in the correct manner so that it holds the boom out and you can spec the materials that it's made from so that it doesn't damage anything and in fact has a little bit of stretch at the right moment to save you from disaster. So preventers, very, very useful, but rig them correctly. That little short piece of line that goes from the boom down to the side that looks so good while you're you know, cruising along under fluffy clouds. If you go into a squall and the wind shifts through 70 degrees and suddenly that mains the wrong side out, it's a really sad thing to see a boat come back with the um, boom snapped just by the van where you, someone tied off a line between the, the boom and the side deck. But um, what else is in the same vein? We're talking about jibing. Well, I guess the, the thing that we should talk about then is crash jibing and broaching. This is definitely an area where a lot of people get <clears throat> real nervous about sailing. Jibing's bad enough. But then when the boom flicks over and there's a, a, suddenly there's a lot of things going on, you've got to really keep your orientation, particularly if it's like foggy or dark or, you know, conditions where you can't keep your eye on exactly where the orientation is with the wind. You can get into a situation where um, the boat crash jibes and, uh, and, and you end up in a bit of a pickle. So let's, um, let's talk about like worst case scenario first. I always find that's better because if we, if we work out what the worst case scenario is, then we can plan for that. And then everything else should be roughly inside our comfort zone. The worst thing is to go out and think like, oh, yeah, we've tacked a load and we're doing whatever we're doing and we've jibed on light days. And then on a heavy day, you jibe and suddenly you're catapulted out of your comfort zone and into not just a learning zone, but into a, a fear zone where you now you don't know what's going on. And that scares people and they don't know how to, to deal with that. Um, Actually, that reminds me, you know, somebody wrote to me just recently and uh, I need to dig out the email. It's a really good email. And I just realized that it's kind of uh, got, got left behind a little bit. We'll put this in questions and tangents as well. And he was saying, what is the best way to be the captain to my two young sons when I go out sailing? I'm going to dig it out. We're going to listen to his question in full in the next questions and tangents. Um, but, you know, as as a parent, as a as a leader, a skipper, amateur skipper, taking people out, being able to remain calm even when things are kind of uh, getting a little bit uh, noisy getting a little bit tippy is is very very good knowing what the worst case scenario is and having it already planned for is is a brilliant move so i'm gonna i'm gonna find that question and we're going to talk about it next time because it's certainly related to this jibing is when you can find out who's actually relaxed on board and who's got a kind of relaxed facade up so crash jibing um you're sailing downwind let's imagine that the mainsail is out to the left side and then your headsail or your kite whatever it is are out to the right side we'll just keep it nice and simple i'm not interested in people telling me you've got to say port you've got to say star but you can't say ropes like whatever <laughs> i'm so far beyond it i just don't care anymore we're on the left side the right side there is actually a technicality where you do say left and right if it was boats out on the ocean but if we're talking to people who are new to sailing 
We don't have to use jargon all the time. I'm not here to be a gatekeeper to knowledge. We're going the other way. We're trying to open things up. So the flipping mains on the left side, and the jib or whatever it else is, is on the right side. And you're sailing along and um, you lose lose concentration. I remember being out on some uh, a sailing trip and uh, the, the helmsman dropped a piece of brie off the baguette slice he was best about to eat. And as he bent down to... Um, to retrieve the brie from the floor, you know, using the uh, five-day rule that exists on all boats. It's only been down for five days. It's still edible. Um, the boat jibed. So thereafter with that crew, they were known as brie moments where you uh, you just lose concentration for a second. Just something takes your, uh, takes your eye and then suddenly the boat is uh, heading in a completely new direction. If it's a smaller boat, if it's a light day, it might not be too much of a problem. Certain circumstances, as we know, become uh, it can become very very dangerous. And I guess, um, <clears throat> you know, joking aside, there's, there's an opportunity here to, to take a moment and to, to look at an actual tragedy that happened that relates to jibing and, uh, and to learn from it, because I know the people that are involved in the situation would, would only want that others could avoid it. That's what we talk about with, uh, you know, reading all these uh, uh, sailing books and what have you. We want to learn from things that went wrong. So I'm going to keep names and everything out of it. But it was um, it was one of the fatalities that happened on the Clipper race a few years ago. And uh, I think there's a lot to be learned from it. So the Clipper boats have got a traveler which goes pretty much the full width of the back of the cockpit. And it's about just below your knee height. So um, it's easy enough to step over it. And uh, it's a big working cockpit. The cockpit's probably you know 25 feet from front to back, and the helm is a long way away from the people who are in the cockpit. And on the particular day that uh, this tragedy happened, the crew were sailing along, and there was someone quite inexperienced at the helm. And the watch leader was talking to. This is how I remember it. So do forgive me if I've got uh, details mixed up, but I think I come to the correct conclusion here. Um, the watch leader is stood next to the person helming and is giving them tips on. This is what you need to do. And that's, of course, how you you know teach people and, and develop on their knowledge. And then um, wanted to get into, I think it was a, a reef or, or a jive. I think it was a reef. They were going to they were going to just shorten sails, get a bit hairy. So the watch leader stepped over the traveler, was still clipped onto the boat by a tether, which was attached at the deck by the helm station, stepped over the the traveler to to speak to the people in the cockpit so you could be heard a bit more easily and uh, the person driving the boat lost concentration for a second the boom crossed the boat the big bang as it goes through the main sheet you know shoots across from one side to another oh my god spin the wheel the opposite way the boom goes back over to the other side of the boat and when everybody you know takes a second and looks around the watch leader is now on the deck and unfortunately the watch leader had passed away during this crash jibe because the main sheet had moved over with such force that it had imparted a vector load. It had kind of gone into the middle of his um, safety tether, which was tethered on the deck and then obviously attached to him. It had pulled on it so hard that it had pulled him into the traveler. He'd had a, uh, his, his head had come in contact with the traveler and unfortunately was, uh, was lost at that moment. So pretty, pretty extreme situation. Um, the other one, I know there was another incident with Clipper, and this is not to, to say anything about Clipper. Clipper takes thousands and thousands of people around the world. In the end, you're going to have freak accidents. It is the nature of the sea. The key to it, and I think that's where Clipper shines, is that it's a morally acceptable accident. They have done everything they can possibly do to train people to uh, understand the dangers. Having been a Clipper skipper, I know that the area around the main sheet is you know, heavily reinforced as being a very, very dangerous area. But a, a moment of um, 
concentration on something else you know one of those kind of squirrel moments right you just look around look at something else start chatting to somebody uh, that's why i have an area of this podcast called questions and tangents so i can't keep my mind on things it happens the area around the main sheet has to be regarded by all crew members as being a very dangerous zone and i think that's what uh, that that watch leader that was involved in that if anything can be taken from that so other people in the future are not uh, hurt in the same way um everything around the traveler is dangerous and on the big boats it's very easy to learn that you know one big jibe everything goes sliding across and those big blocks those big um, cars on that big traveler moving big distances very fast it's very easy to see wow there's a lot of force in play the mistake comes when um, it's like 35, 45 foot boats and you don't really realize that your like 10 ton boat is being pulled and pushed around by the forces imparted through, you know, the main sheet, the jib sheet, the spinnaker sheet, the jib halyard, the main halyard. This is where these forces from these sails come uh, come home to roost and, and impart their load into the boat. I remember being at the um, Caribbean 600 and a young professional sailor um, stood at the back of the boat having a pee holding onto the main sheet and uh, the boat jibed as he was uh, there and uh, his hand went into the into the block he lost two fingers um, now I don't uh, I don't recount these stories to to dwell on other people's uh, pain or suffering but to try and share the education like what's the worst case scenario well the worst case scenario if you're stood in and around the main sheet is that you can get seriously injured it is not to be messed around with and when you consider that the boom comes across the back of the boat and then goes loose and can pick up whatever's in the cockpit, including around someone's neck, around someone's hand, around a piece of equipment, whatever, and then flies off in the new direction at, at top speed, it's very easy to understand how an injury can occur. So how do we how do we guard against that? Well, we have to make sure that the area around the main sheet is kept pretty clear during downwind operations, not just during jibes, you know, you, you can't see it coming if you do that kind of crash jibe by helming like that. Um, and, and, well, in all crash jibes, what am I talking about? No one's like meaning to do it. There might be a moment where as the, as the helm you can shout, we're going to jibe and then people can clear out, but it's just not going to happen. So making sure that people, you know, on our boats are like two or three feet ahead of the traveler, a two or three feet behind the traveler is absolutely essential. Um, that's a worst case scenario. Another worst case scenario is getting caught in a situation where um, because of backstays or because of a preventer or, or the main sheet itself getting wrapped around the pedestal or something like that, the main is unable unable to ease out on the other side and the boat uh, jibes and then it rounds up towards the wind. The headsail stops it from going all the way into the wind and then the boat ends up pinned over on its side. So we can talk about that because a lot of people are worried about that. I guess the first thing to think about in this situation is that, um, you know, we go sailing on these monohull boats primarily uh, to uh, experience life out on the open ocean. And we talk so much about trusting the boat and I'm really, they feel this boat strong and all these kind of things. But, you know, what's its actual characteristics? What can it actually do? What's its, uh, what's its superpowers? If it's a, a really fast boat, with just like a dagger board in it, more like a dinghy or something, then it can tip over a certain amount of distance and then it's going to fall over. That's just how it's going to go. If it's something like an etchel or a, a blue nose that we have here in Nova Scotia or anything open, it's going to tip over so far and then it's going to start down flooding and then the boat's going to go right over. If you have sealed decks and sealed companionway uh, hatch and uh, a decent amount of um, down flooding angle, can you get the boat to 90 degrees? 
Yes, you can. The boat can go over to 90 degrees. Most bigger boats, you know, keel boats, will go over to 90 degrees without much trouble. You know, everything inside is going to fall over and people are going to fall over. But if you're attached to the boat and you have any kind of awareness at all, the uh, situation after a knockdown, after a crash jibe, doesn't actually have to be so stressful, which sounds crazy because your boat's now on its side. But this is the point at which the weight in the keel is at its most effective. It is now at 90 degrees to where it wants to be. It wants to stand the boat back up and that's what it's going to try and do as long as there isn't a sail holding it over on its side. So it is very, very uh, nerve-wracking to anticipate that the boat may go onto its side. But once you've been there a few times, you realize like, oh, hang on, this is not so bad. It's kind of like being very worried about uh, accidentally rolling a kayak and then learning to roll a kayak. Now, obviously, you don't roll the boat, but you learn what happens after the bit that you're nervous about. When the kayak goes over, you just set up underwater and roll the boat back up. When the boat gets knocked down in a brooch, you're going to need to do this and this and this and this and stand here and be there and do the other and watch out for that. And then the boat's going to come back upright again. And once you can but kind of blow through to the other side of your fears, get to the bit where the thing that really makes you nervous has happened, you tend to find it's not really that bad at all. You know, as long as no one's actually hurt or pinned in a position where they can't get uh, above the water or something, it, it's not really that bad a situation at all. So I would say plan for the very, very worst, have it in mind what you're going to do, brief people, and then stay calm and relaxed. And it's difficult to do that if you haven't actually been through these things before, but you've got to play the part. And sometimes being the skipper is knowing what to say at the right time rather than um, having been there before. You know, you've got to keep people calm. You've got to keep people relaxed. You've got to keep problem solving whatever's happening. And you're playing a role to do that. And well, you could say you're faking it till you make it. I think perhaps that's what it is. And think, that's the transition zone we're in, which is where people feel a little bit like imposters. How well do I know this boat? Can I actually get through people through to the other side of this safely? Um, as an amateur sailor, that's a very difficult question to answer. So the best you can do is learn all the things you need to do in all the different circumstances, have them in your head, which you can pick up from a podcast like this or from reading books, non-fiction sailing books. And then when things start to happen, all you have to do is just try and find a moment of calmness to refer back to what it is that you know you should do and then go through those actions. So I know we're coming into about an hour and a quarter here. I don't want to make these too long. I often do and I think they get to a point where it's a little bit uh, difficult to uh, keep going on about the same subject. The idea with the ABC is I kind of shoot from my hip. So I started out at the beginning by talking about all the stuff to do with the, the big boats, the, uh, the open 60s. Once you're dealing with that many elements inside of a jibe, every element of the boat having to be considered, it's difficult not to take that over to every bit of sailing that you do and then not end up taking everything quite seriously. And I think with jibing, that's probably a very good idea. There's a lot of forces at play. So, yeah, um, let's have a see as we go into the end of this. What have I got here? I've written on my notes. Um, uh, Chinese jibe. People always ask me about Chinese jibe. Chinese jibe is where you have a big square top mainsail. So this already discounts a lot of boats. Um, square top mainsails particularly find it easy to do this. What happens is that the boom jibes over, but the top of the mainsail doesn't go with it. So when you've got a big square mainsail, it's actually possible for the boom to jump up, the vang's not on, or the sheet's really loose or something, and the boom goes up. And when it goes up, it's then able to find a path from one side of the boat to the other without jibing the top of the mainsail. So you've got this weird like figure of eight wine glass looking mainsail in front of you 
And the, the secret to that is that you've got to get the boom back to where it was. Unless you really do know exactly how to move through your backstays, if you've got a boat which has got a big square top main on it, it's probably got full running backstains. And that means as the boom came across, unless you're like halfway very uncomfortably through a jibe, um, it's come up against a backstay. So the boom's got to go back where it was. But that can often be very, very difficult because the boat doesn't want to go in that direction. So um, it, it can be a, it can be difficult getting out of those circumstances. Um, you've got to try and keep way on uh, so that you've got the ability to point the boat in new directions and you've got to react as fast as you possibly can. Um, I think there's something else we could talk about here actually. It's not exactly jibing, but it's, it's very close. Um, jibing, crash jibing, broaching, all kind of in the same bucket, aren't they? So how do you get out of it when it starts to go wrong and you start to get in a situation where you think you're going to jibe? Well, the first question has got to be, how do I stop it from jibing? The, the key to this is you've got to recognize the situation before it starts to happen. There should be a feeling when you're going downwind. Um, kind of imagine like you're inside a weeble. You know, a weeble wobbles, but it doesn't fall down. One of those inflatable toys for children, kind of elongated egg shape with a, a happy character painted on the outside of it and a big weight in the bottom. So you can push him right over and he stands back up again. Weebles are not very popular in Europe, so I just have to <laughs> make sure people there know what we're talking about. But a weeble wobbles and doesn't fall down. But that feeling of like um, it wants to get upright. It wants to be made into an upright thing. If it has no other forces on it, it'll just be upright. That's how I feel when I'm going downwind in a boat and we're right on the edge of is this thing going to jibe? Are we going to complete our evolution? Or are we out of control? You get a kind of feeling in your pants like like you're a, a weeble trying to trying to find the upright position. And it's very easy to kind of miss the upright position. You end up steering the boat around underneath the kite trying to keep the boat under the kite um, if it starts to get out of control the uh, sails start to take over and this is something which um, people don't seem to realize even with quite small boats like a laser or something if you get into the wrong combination of um, main sheet tension and helm position and, uh, and and jib sheet position and you just get into this weird situation where the sails have enough leverage to take over your boat whatever size it is that's what's going to happen next. No amount of steering is going to help this. People will often suspect that they like steered the boat the wrong way or that they didn't steer enough or something. But the, the fact of the matter is that uh, you've got a very, very brief moment in time where you still have enough way on the boat and you have enough clean water. And by that, I mean, it's not full of air. It's not cavitating enough clean flow over the rudder that it's got enough grip to actually change the angle of the boat like one last time before the, the sails really take over. And how this manifests itself is that you're going down, going downwind and maybe you're going quite quickly and you can, you know, feel with the rudder or whether you've got a tiller and a helm or whether you've got a wheel and something going underneath the boat um, that's a bit more racy. You can start to feel the pressure on the on the helm in your hand. You can start to interact with the with the forces which are inside the waves. You can feel the pressure coming up against the rudder as you go down the waves and surf and all the rest of it. And you can feel the effects of the sails as the sails start to get a bit out of control, maybe a jibe and then a jibe back. You can feel that loading kind of coming onto the steering. And what happens from a like technical point of view underwater is that if the boat is being dragged into a brooch by the sails, the rudder, um, it doesn't matter how much angle you put on it, if it's already started to move in that direction, forced in that direction by the sails, all that's going to happen is that the rudder is going to get dragged through the water, whatever angle it's at. And when that happens, there'll be so much low pressure around the, uh, around the rudder that it will start to cavitate. It'll start to uh, get such low pressure, it'll start to ventilate. It'll start to suck water down from the surface of the, 
um, surface of the water and then your rudder is just in a big pocket of uh, gas and air that it's sucked down and 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 boiled water essentially um, which it's then just uh, it's not doing anything it's not gripping with the the water at all there's no flow over it it's just in a pocket of cavitation it's super cavitating so at that point then the boat spins out so how do we start to detect this and move against this as you start to put your helming on you'll actually hear through the deck or over the side of the boat or whatever you're gonna get this feeling for and you're gonna hear this sound it sounds <laughs> it sounds like uh, someone breathing over a microphone underwater as this air starts getting sucked down to the rudder and when that happens you've got a split second of choice of which which direction do you want to finally let go of your steering because very soon the rudder is going to uh, go into such ventilation and such a cavitation that it's not going to uh, change the direction of the boat anymore. So as you put your helm in, as you start to realize that, whoa, this is lot's jived and it's starting to power up and it wants to take me that way, you've got to put all the helm in the world that there is on into turning the boat into the desired direction to get out of this thing. So if you've accidentally let the main flick across, you've got to put enough wheel on that it just flicks that main right back to the other side. When it's on the other side, it'll make you sail downwind and there'll be flow on the rudder. If it continues going where it is and it jibes, there won't be any flow over the rudder because it will just be in a pocket of gas. So you've got this last second. And on big boats, um, what we'll have the... Now, if you were the kite, you'd be asking for the vang to be released, right? At this point, you get that from the from the rudder. Release the vang, that's your indicator that the rudder's about to lose grip. Um, on big boats where that might be a little bit difficult to do that and the, the pull down on the boom, the vang is uh, hydraulic. We have a, a, it's called an OS switch, an oh shit switch next to the helm on either side and you press that and it just opens the valves on the vang and the vang is then able to release and release the pressure on the main. Um, the knowing when to press that button is when you get that ventilation. That's what will happen before a broach. That's what will happen if you go into a jibe and the boat starts to round up, you're going to hear all that air coming over the rudder. So if you're going downwind and your jibe starts to look like it's uh, starting to mess up, very um, specifically choose which direction you're going to point the boat and then wind as much wheel on as you can to try and take it in that direction one last time where it's got a little bit of grip and then hopefully you'll be on the right course and you'll, you'll save yourself from whatever was about to happen. But look, I hope in there somewhere there's a, a few things that are useful. It's jibing and tacking. We didn't do much about tacking in the end, I guess. I guess I just wanted kind of permission to, to discuss it. As with all things, there is a way of doing tacking, you know, smoother um, than, than, uh, than just barreling into it without any discussion. If you talk through with people, you can gain a couple seconds on every tack. Racers know this. You know, you're beating up to windward and you're um, tacking the boat many, many times. If your tacks are inefficient, then you're losing distance compared to someone who's doing the same distance with the same boat but making clean tacks. And carrying speed through the tack is an absolutely essential skill. You know, you're not to kind of wind the wheel on so hard that the boat just flicks onto the new course um, but bogged down by the wheel being so far on. You only need a few degrees of rudder to get the boat to um, cruise through that zone where it's not powered up by the wind, where you head to wind, and then come out on the other side, dip a little bit low, foot a little bit, get the sails full and then as the trim starts to come on you get back into your upwind mode you come back up to that nice um, uh, upwind VMG positions where you're in the groove so tacking you know it's pretty pretty simple we can go through it another time I'm sure we will it's a, it's a sailing podcast after all but um, jiving and tacking both um, you know key elements in in our sailing and yet uh, something which um, you know how many times have you gone out and just practiced jiving 
Um, there's a lot of race crews don't even do that. And yet you can always kind of tell them at the starts in the, in the Caribbean, there are boats which will go up to windward and they'll start jibing downwind with the kite and then put the kite away, go back upwind, jibe. And this is all before the start. They're happy. They're in the comfort zone or learning zone. They want to get it dialed in. They're not scared of jibes. They've got all the tools they need to get through that problem. And other boats, of course, including ourselves, because we've got amateur sailors on board, we're just trying to get the start done. <laughs> we don't want to be going to windward and messing around with kites. We'll go through it slowly when we get to the top mark and we'll make it happen. That is where we're at with Spartan. That's what we do when we go racing. It's one of the reasons I don't go racing that much anymore. And I favor doing a lot more stuff, which is long distance, where you're not jibing every you know, 15 minutes where there's a disadvantage for a charter crew. So um, I'm very aware of the fact that the, the gains that you can get if you can get your uh, downwind evolutions, your jibing and your upwind evolutions, your tacking sorted out. But uh, safety, I think, is the thing that most people are concerned about. Jibing, definitely something to be practiced. Don't don't be afraid of it and uh, try and um, make it so you understand what's going on. That when those uh, you get to the bottom of the wind and, you know, you've got your apparent wind cliff, you've got the... Uh, the, the, the how much grip is on the rudder you've got exactly the evolution that you're going to go through this is something that you really know that you're very happy with and over time you can start to step back a little bit from it you're not so involved in it you can make it more efficient and you can relax into it and be the skipper that you want to be for for those people who join you on the boat but um Yes, I hope there's something in there for you. That's jibing. That's all I have to say about that. Um, for those of you who are over on Patreon, thank you very much for your support. Your support allows all this stuff to happen. We've got the Rare Nautical Reads uh, channel, which is going very well. We're reading the book by Alain Collard, um, which is uh, awesome. His uh, trip around the world in 1972. I didn't know much about his story. I'm so glad that I read the book. I'm actually going to do a review of the book here on this a part of the podcast so that you can just kind of get a feel for it if you want to listen to the whole thing i've narrated it over on the rare nautical reads podcast but i think it's good just to find out what this book's about even if you don't want to listen to the whole thing um i've got a, an interview which i did a couple of days ago with a chap called steve ladd that's coming up incredible stories written two books and i think just by giving you the names of the books you'll understand why it's interesting to, to have an interview with him first book three years in a 12-foot boat second book five years in a boat. So you can get a feel for what it is that uh, Alan's been doing in that interview coming up soon. Um, I've just got to edit it together. It was very interesting talk to him. Um, what else we got? Uh, yes, we, the jibes, famous jibes in your life, jibes that have cursed you, jibes that have saved you. Write to me with any of those. They're quite fun uh, to, to read out. Um, we've got, of course, your five best sailing non-fiction reads fiction reads there's some pretty good fiction reads down there master and commander doesn't really feel like non-fiction but it's brilliant so let's just say your five best <laughs> sailing reads um and we can get a feel for for what people are enjoying um and what else we've got patreon yeah we've got more things going on over there at the moment um katie's getting very good at posting stuff there really kind of drawing feeling a community together and we've got the latest seamanship video 45 minute video um, what's that one on? We've got one coming out, which is the mainsail. We've got another one coming out, which is uh, hanking on the jibs on these big boats. And once we've done that, we're getting into the season now where we're going to be going out sailing and the seamanship courses on Patreon will be actual evolutions on the boat. While we've been going through the winter and while we were going through the end of COVID there, it was very difficult to get out, have a crew on the boat and do more of the kind of sailing evolutions. But that's coming now. We're getting uh, ready for uh, sailing with Spartan and of course we've got the Newport Bermuda race coming up soon we've had a few wiggles and jiggles and we've had to cancel a few things at the beginning of this year as we just got 
everything lined back up. Unbelievable running a, a business at this uh, time in the world. But um, we're online for the Newport Bermuda in June. And after June, um, well, let me see. We've got uh, Newport to Bermuda. And then we've got the trip, the East Coast Flyer, as it's called, which is from Bermuda back up to Lunenburg. Nice one, that. There's still... I think it's still half empty that boat. So if you're interested in doing that 85 foot boat, leaving from Bermuda, three days of safety training before we depart, and then five days on the water going back up to Lunenburg. It's about 750 miles, and we go from brilliant um, blue waters around uh, Bermuda and 21 degrees, and then we go through the Gulf Stream, through the northern wall of the Gulf Stream, which is often quite challenging, and then into the darker, cooler waters around Nova Scotia. It's a real a real voyage, although it's not very, very long, 750 miles, um, often good wind angles to, to take us back to Lunenburg at that time of year. But for those people who are doing the Newport Bermuda race, an interesting opportunity perhaps to come back to the North American mainland on a different kind of boat. And if you're interested in getting to offshore sailing, it's a perfect short run. And what we do is that one and the Newfoundland Screech that goes from Lunenburg up to Newfoundland. Both of those for us are kind of loss leaders. Um, they're cheaper, they're shorter, they're just there to get people excited about offshore sailing, maybe overcome some of the trepidation you might feel about getting into that kind of situation. Some people are worried about the sailing. Some people are worried about that boat is so big. Is it going to be like my boat? Yeah, we, it is. It's not a Volvo 70. It still feels like a boat. Uh, honestly, that's one of the reasons that we got it. Challenger 2. People always say that if you get much bigger than Challenger, then it doesn't really feel like a uh, a real boat you know it's kind of moved away from what a boat is when you're dealing with the modern stuff that's square and massive and all made of carbon but that um that maxi we've got absolutely beautiful and it's just like a kind of uh like challenger on steroids it's like there's a nice big galley and there's a nice big heads it's wonderful so we're doing that come back up to Lunenburg, and then we'll be going on the newfoundland screech which turns into the marconi transat which takes us all the way across to england and then of course this year totally different for spartan we're going to be going from the UK, from Cowes in the uh, kind of mecca for sailing in the UK, Cowes up to Stavanger in Norway, right up the English Channel, right up the North Sea. Uh, very interesting sailing up through there, into the fjords there. And then the next adventure is called the Faroe Islands Explorer. That leaves from Norway and goes to the Faroe Islands, which <clears throat> I have never been to the Faroe Islands. <laughs> I am very excited about this one. And then we're heading off from there to Iceland, which again, I've been wanting to go there since the year 2000. I, I said in the year 2000, I'm going to go to Iceland for the new year. It didn't kind of happen. I went to Stockholm instead, but um, that's been on my hit list for a long time. So Iceland, and then we do the Atlantic Voyager, which comes 1600 miles from Iceland back down to Newfoundland. Um, and then we have the Grand Banker, which goes from Newfoundland to St. Pierre, a little French island off of Nova Scotia, and back to Nova Scotia again. Just another um, uh, 350 mile of that last one, the Grand Banker. So all sorts of things. If you want to cross an ocean, if you want to go and see the crazy half-made lands of, uh, of Iceland, which I certainly do, um, or if you want to come back down into Newfoundland at the end of the year. And I've got something special which I'm going to be announcing soon. We have another event we're going to be putting on at the end of the year. Um, if you've ever heard of the Cape to Rio race, you know what I'm talking about. It's the 50th anniversary this year. It sets off on the 2nd of January, 2023. And we are looking to take Osprey down and be involved in that race. I'm very, very excited about that. It's a first big voyages that we've done for, well, kind of the life of the company, really. We're going to be going all the way from Nova Scotia all the way down to Cape Town. We're going to break that up and go Nova Scotia to Antigua, Antigua to Rio, 
Rio to Cape Town. So if any of that sounds interesting, get a get in early and we'll uh, we'll we'll give you a bit of a discount or something. It's not even on the website yet, but um, I know the Cape to Rio race is going to be very exciting, and we've got space on that for 18 on that 85 foot boat. So it's going to be amazing. If you've ever crossed the Atlantic doing the Canary Islands to the Caribbean, this is the the southern hemisphere version of it is described as some of the best sailing in the world so have a see about that the cape to rio race.com has got a fantastic website and uh, we'll be putting it on our own website soon so lots going on um as i said before i've been a little bit uh, quiet in the last couple of weeks uh, the cracked tooth um you can probably still hear it a little bit when i'm talking but suddenly i've worked out how to talk around it so i'm back on board so rare nautical reads is back to being daily We'll see if we can get two or three of these Mariner podcasts out per week. And I hope that G is for jibing and tacking was some use to you. But wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and well as always. And I'll speak to you soon. Cheers. Cheers.